U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I'm joined by Stephen, the XO. Ahoy there. So, lesson learned from last week. Barrels do not float as well as I theorized. In the event of a sinking, do not jump in a barrel. Good advice, good advice. What are you going to try next? Um, I hear wooden doors work, as long as you don't have your girlfriend nearby. Well, I guess we're going to have to make sure your girlfriend's not nearby. All right, Captain. So, we'll make sure Phil doesn't come on the next trip. (laughs) So, we're going to finish off 1812 today. We have seven battles left, so we're going to we're going to get through them. You ready to get underway? I am ready to shove off. All right, the first one is going to be the Battle of LaGuardia. It is a battle that was fought in the Caribbean Sea on December 11th of 1812. So, on December 10th, the USS Saratoga was on a cruise raiding commercial commerce. She had 16 guns, 140 men, and was captained by Charles W. Wooster. So when he arrived and anchored off LaGuardia, the American consul there told him that if he stayed in port, the Spanish garrison would fire upon her with their shore batteries and attempt to sink her. So the Americans were like, thank you for the warning, and withdrew to off the coast, but stayed in the area. And then later that day, she captured a British schooner and sent her back to the U.S. as a prize. All right. So on the 11th, there was a very heavy fog. And once it cleared, the Americans spotted a brig that was coming into port. This was the the letter of Mark Rachel. She was commanded by Captain N. Damahoy. She had... 14 nine-pound guns and a crew of 36. And she had been at sea for 57 days at but to this point. Now, it turns out that Dalmahoy had died two weeks before this engagement. So the first mate, Alexander, was in charge. Don't get any ideas. You can't get rid of me to take over the podcast. Right. No mutiny. Just... A change of uh, management. So once the Saratoga spotted the British ship, she decided to get underway to intercept her. And it took about two hours to close within firing range. Now, the Spanish colonists expected the arrival of the British ship, the Rachel. So about a hundred, probably more colonists rushed to the beaches to watch this battle. Ah, the 1800s. What a marvelous time to be alive, where war was a spectator sport. Yeah. Even during the Civil War, there were picnics up on hills watching the battles. Why, yes, lovey, I do believe the boys in blue are sending the greys running for the hills. So once they both got into range of each other, the Saratoga opened fire. The British also opened fire from their port quarter guns, and they both kept firing on each other till they were both side to side. For half an hour, the two vessels just fired into each other. And then once the Rachel's fire 
started to become scattered and disorganized and pretty much just stopped. That was when the fighting ended. The Americans got a little bit closer and started firing on them with small arms fire, driving the British below decks. And then the Americans boarded her. The British killed two men, which actually included Alexander, the first mate, and two men were wounded, one of whom died. Now, on the Saratoga, only two men were wounded. Nobody died. Now, the next day, Wooster found that he was short of water. So he released 27 of the prisoners and sent them onto shore at LaGuardia in a longboat. But he kept four of the prisoners on Rachel and two on Saratoga. So that puts us on the 13th now, I believe, when the HMS Fawn under Captain Thomas Fellows finds the Rachel and recaptures her. Don't they usually have a tendency to scuttle the ships if they see an enemy ship closing before they can uh, finish repairs to take it as prize? Well, we don't have any information on how much the ships actually suffered in damages, so more than likely there wasn't much. So they were probably already underway again when they encountered this other vessel. So when the British recaptures her, they take the Americans which were the prize crew, which numbered about 12, on board the Fawn, and then put their own prize crew back on board the Rachel. And then they sent her to Jamaica, where the Vice Admiralty Court condemned her as a prize, which, I mean, it was already theirs to begin with. No backseas. And then the Fawn went into LaGuardia and picked up the Rachel's original crew. And they all were like, you know what? We are going to... Serve on board the fawn. <laughs> and then most of them pretty much deserted a little bit after that. So that's it for for this one. Oh, uh, yes. A classic case of, it's my ship now. No, 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 no. It was our ship to begin with. I'm taking you this back. And we're going to take credit for it. Mm-hmm. So there's also a battle of December 13th. This was just off of... Louisiana near Lake Born near Lake Borgin. It involved a flotilla of British longboats and a American schooner. Looks like forty-two longboats versus one schooner. And a shore battery. I mean I guess you have to use what you have. So the British decided that they wanted to do a invasion of Louisiana. So they decided they were gonna do this at Lake Borgin. Bourgeon. But in order to land, a squadron of American gunboats and other ships had to be destroyed. So the evening of December 13th, the British set course for the lake. So, just so I'm on the same page, is this a lake that fed into or was fed by the Mississippi River? Because doesn't seem like an easy way to get to a landlocked lake if it's a naval vessel. So this is called a lake, but it's actually connected right to the gull. There is... Oh, okay. It's surrounded on three sides, which is probably why they call it a lake. So it's actually more of a bay. It could be described as a bay as well, but these guys call it a lake. Bay is an inlet of the sea. It opens... It faces open sea. A lake is an inland body of water surrounded by, on all sides by land, which is what 
be always defined as that. But yeah, no, this is definitely surrounded three sides by land. So I don't know why they call it a lake. They're just Cajun. I mean, that's, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, it's technically English? French. Oh, they don't even pretend that it's English. No, uh, Louisiana has a huge French population. No, I, I, I know. I just, uh, I also know the stereotype with the Cajun dialect is that you need subtitles to understand them. Sometimes. Look, I saw two episodes of Swamp People. It doesn't make me an expert in Cajun. <laughs> I just remember half of it being subtitles because there's Aaron and Gator. Which roughly translates to, there are gators over there and we're going to get get some because their hide soap for pretty good. They are unique people. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so, the British wanted to go to this lake, which isn't really a lake, but we'll let them call it a lake. Right. So, a guy named Alexander Cochran, he orders Captain Nicholas Lockyer to take a force of 42 armed longboats, armed barges, and armed launches, and three armed gigs with around 1,000 to 1,200 sailors and marines, which also had eight 24-pound guns mounted on the bow of these longboats. So Alexander, he stayed on the HMS Armadai and sent these guys to go off and invade. And so the commanding officer thought it'd be a good idea to stay in a boat that sounds very much like Armadai. Not not the brightest individual, but okay. Yeah, remember, these were the guys with the HMS Confidence. Because they needed confidence. And they did lose that one. So the Americans had the USS Seahorse, commanded by Sailing Master William Johnson. So, what would the equivalent rank of that be nowadays? Sailing master is a historic term for a naval officer trained in and responsible for the navigation of a sailing vessel. The rank can be equated to a professional seaman and specialist in navigation rather than a military commander. So, civilian specialist? In the British Royal Navy, the master was a rank of warrant officer. And then in the U.S. Navy, master is listed also as a warrant officer. Which would be an NCO rather than a... It, a warrant officer, at least in modern times, is right between enlisted and commissioned. Okay. It's... Warrant officer is one of those gray areas. Now, in 1837, Master was turned into Lieutenant Junior Grade. Lieutenant J.G., which is officer in training? Or no. 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 It, it's an O2. So Ensign, Lieutenant JG, Lieutenant. That is Lieutenant Commander, Commander, Captain, Admiral. That's the way commissioned officers' ranks are. So Lieutenant JG would be one silver bar. Okay. So the Seahorse. They were on a mission to. Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, to destroy some weapon stores to try to prevent the British from possibly capturing it. 
Now, she only had one six-pound cannon and a crew of 14 men. There was also a shore battery and an unknown amount of artillery on the land. So, I mean, most of the action was going up on the northeast. So, forces down here were very sparse. Right. So, on the way to Bay St. Louis, the seahorse spotted Captain Lockyer's longboats during the evening of December 13th in a waterway between Lake Bourgine and the Bay of St. Louis, which is on the Gulf of Mexico. So as soon as Lockyer spotted the seahorse in return, he sent a bunch of his boats after it. He wanted to capture her. Right, makes sense. So a brief exchange occurs at this point in time. Now there was light damage to the schooner, killing two men and wounding another two. So William Johnson, after this, orders his crew to head for the coastline because he knew the artillery battery was there and the British vessels followed because they did not know they were there. So once they were brought the British boats into range of the artillery, the seahorse turned around, at which point the artillery on the coast began firing into the British flotilla. The British flotilla said, nope, <laughs> and turned around. So once the British broke off their attack, Master Johnson felt that the coastline with the battery of guns was a good place to anchor his ship until the morning. So he dropped anchor and the crew goes to bed. Now, after a little bit of rest, the longboats came back, this time in greater numbers. The Royal Navy was able to achieve a closer range attack because the Americans were in bed thinking that the battle was over for the night. <laughs> they didn't have any sentries to raise the alarm or anything? Well, actually, they did, because one member of the crew, and again, this is a 14-man crew, spotted these British boats that were rowing very silently to try to sneak up on them. And so he raised the alarm. So the crew were immediately ordered to arm themselves with small arms or to man the one gun that they had one cannon so they were able to keep their activity secret from the british the british had no idea that the alarm had been raised and as they drew closer the americans opened fire now the guys on shore once they hear the seahorse open fire they open fire now it says that accurate fire from the american small arsenal of weapons proved very efficient and the British noped out once again. <laughs> they come back for a third time? No, at this point, Captain Lockyer was like, we're not going to do this. We can't get the seahorse. We're just going to go on. So they continue on to Lake Barong. So the British suffered a number of boats damaged in the battle. We don't have a number of dead or wounded. The U.S., though, said that the schooner had minor damage and that we had two dead and two wounded 
So William Johnson realized that the enemy fleet was nearby and that if the British really, really wanted to and stop being cowards, they could take that boat. Oh, easily. I mean, if it's only a crew of now 10 and two wounded, you know, not much you can do against several longboats. So he orders the boat to make for the nearest settlement. Then he ran it aground and burned it. And that is the end of the USS Seahorse. I mean, it's pretty impressive that that crew, even though they were only 14, were able to repel two fairly well-organized British uh, raiding parties. Now, the lake, once these guys got to the lake, they were actually rowing for around 36 hours. That's a long time to row. Oh, yeah. And they found five American vessels in line abreast to block the channel between Malaru Island and Point Clare, which was on the mainland. Now, the British, they advance, and they spotted the alligator and immediately sends off a few of the longboats to try to cut her off, and they quickly capture her. So, at around 10.00 on the morning of December 14th, the boats had closed to within long gunshot by St. Joseph's Islands. And Lockyer, he goes, All right, boys, breakfast. So he forms the boats into three divisions. He takes command of the first and gives Montessor of Manly command of the second and Roberts of Meteor command of the third. So they take about a half hour to eat their breakfast and then return to the oars to pull up to the American lines. So the Americans see the gunboats rowing towards them and open fire. Unfortunately, they were not within firing range yet. Now the British, they were rowing against a strong current and under heavy fire of round shot and grape shot. Both bad business for rowboats. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, the Americans kept firing as many times as possible before they were able to close within range. And they were able to sink two of the longboats and damage a lot of the others. And most of the guys in Lockyer's boat, they were killed. <laughs> he just kept ducking behind anyone that was nearby if the bolts were flying? Yeah. Oh, this guy's dead. Let me hide behind another guy. <laughs> oh, this guy's dead. Let me hide behind another one. Sir, could you please not stand behind me? No, 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 you're good. You're good right there. And now you know why they wear red coats. <laughs> so eventually, they get close enough to board the American vessels. Lockyer apparently personally boards gunboat number 156, which was Jones's ship. And the close quarter combat commences with cutlasses, pikes, bayonets, and muskets. And both captains were wounded severely. They capture Jones's gunboat and turn her guns against her sister ships. They fired broadsides and assisted in the capture of the other American boats. One by one, the British took the other gunboats, boarding and then capturing the entire flotilla. Would you like to know how long this took? I will take... 10 minutes for 
$20. You owe me $20. Dang it. It took five. Uh, Oh, whoa. That's very, very impressive. So the tickler, which was a small sloop of 50 tons, was anchored a little way away behind the five gunboats. And they watched the fight. But Jones ordered that they stay out of the fight before the fight took place. Now, when her captain saw that the British had captured all five of these gunboats in five minutes, he scuttled and burned his vessel. Unfortunately, we don't know what happened to the crew. So, this engagement lasted about two hours. Though the actual fighting only lasted five minutes. The British force greatly outnumbered the Americans, but to the American credit, they had inflicted considerable damage. The British won control of the lakes, but they had given the general a lot of time to prepare defenses for the actual invasion. And with the heavy casualties they suffered, they couldn't actually proceed with the planned invasion, at least with the plan they had. This force was just to clear the area for the invasion. Oh, okay. This was not the invading force. All right. So the Americans lost their gunboats, a sloop. Six men were killed, 35 wounded, and 86 captured. Jones was a POW for three months, and then would later be decorated for his bravery because he delayed the British advance. The British lost 17 dead, 77 wounded, and Captain Lockyer, as we established earlier, was among those wounded. The British lost two longboats to Davy Jones and had a number of others damaged. Is it actually listed as Davy Jones? Well, you know about Davy Jones's locker. I, I do. I'm just wondering. That was me. <laughs> okay. I, I just would have loved to actually see that on a report like, yeah, Davy Jones got it. No. <laughs> so the British took all five of the gunboats into service and they renamed them Ambush, Firebrand, Destruction, Harlington, and Eagle. So in 1847, the Royal Navy issued a clasp or bar for the Naval General Service Medal marked 14 December, Boat Service 1814, to survivors of the battle that wanted to claim the clasp. In all, 205 survivors claimed it. And that is it for New Orleans, because we are not going into the land battle. Nope. So that takes us to the battle off James Island. So this was between a sloop of war and three gun brigs. So the U.S. was focusing on commerce raiding of British whalers off the coast of South America. After taking a number of vessels, Captain Porter made a prize out of the Georginia, which was a 280-ton converted sloop. This sloop initially had six guns, but this was increased to six 18-pounders, four swivel guns, and six blunderbusses. And Lieutenant John Downs was placed in command with 42 others and six volunteers. 
which were recently liberated American sailors. Okay. Downs was then ordered to proceed from the coastal area to harass the British off of James Island in the Galapagos chain. So he got underway on May 12th and headed south. Now, when he neared the island on the 28th, his lookouts sighted a mast and sails on the horizon. This belonged to the 270-ton gun Brig Privateer Catherine, who was operating as a whaler. She was also accompanied by a 220-ton gun brig named Rose. So Downs ordered his men to give chase, and he raised the Union Jack, trying to trick the enemy into believing that they were not under any threats. You've seen this before. Yes, of course. Tried and true method. Raise the other country's flag. See what happens. Well, they get within range, and they lower a few boats filled with men, and they capture both of these sloops without resistance. Okay, that, that sounds like a pretty easy breezy, lemon squeezy uh, engagement. Yeah, the British captains told Downs afterwards that they did not realize they were being attacked until after the Americans were on deck. <laughs> So, just after this capture of the Rose and the Catherine, they spot a third vessel. It was the 270-ton Hector, armed with 11 guns and crewed by 25 men. So, he maneuvered to pursue this new boat. So, as they chase the Hector, the sun goes down. So, once it's completely dark, Georgina fires a warning shot across the Hector's bow. And so the Hector was like, here's some broadsides. Fortunately, these were inaccurate. <laughs> so the Americans start raking the vessel, ripping off its mast, main mast, and most of her rigging. So after doing this, they fire four more broadsides into her. So they look around, they look at her, Hey, let's go in for a boarding action. So they came close, and the British saw what was going on and lowers their colors. They surrender, so the boarding takes place without any fighting. Two British sailors were killed and six wounded. Apparently, all of the British shots passed over the Georgina or fell short. So there was no damage and no casualties to the Americans. So your response to, at this point, they have to be aware that they've lost their two sister ships. You know, morning shot across your bow. You're being pursued. All right, I'm going to give them a volley. And then your gunnery crew decides, well, they were kind enough to give them us a warning shot. Let's just give them hundreds of warning shots. Which were... Ineffective. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Oh, no, no yep, hits. Yep, 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 yeah. <laughs> yep. you're right. <laughs> and then proceeded to get raked. I, exactly. You think at a certain point they'd get the message, you know, crazy thought, let's try hitting the target. This is just another example of the mass difference of gunnery between the British and the Americans. Trained versus relatively untrained. 
Volunteers versus press gang. So would that make this by ratio of casualties suffered versus objectives secured and casualties inflicted the most successful naval engagement in U.S. history? Well, since we haven't gone through them all, I cannot say that with any certainty, but up to this time, sure. Okay. So, the Americans take 75 prisoners. Now, here's the problem. There were only 50 Americans. <laughs> 50 Americans for four boats. So, Lieutenant Downs disarms the Rose and transferred all of the prisoners over to her. They were then released on parole and ordered to go to St. Helena. Georgiana returned to the Essex, which was anchored off of Tumbes in Peru. So when this was going on, uh, David Porter captured a couple more whalers during the exact same day that these guys captured these three boats. Very busy day for everybody. Which means that his flotilla was now nine armed vessels in the Pacific. How many did he start this day with? Just the one? The two. You know, getting a uh, four and a half times multiplier to your uh, sailing strength, that's, that's solid work for a day. Yep. Did he get a congressional plate or anything fancy like that, or...? You got a promotion? Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'll take it. I'm sure he did, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. So that takes us to the Battle of Charles Island. So this will take us back to the Essex with Captain David Porter. All right. So the Essex was accompanied by two smaller vessels that they had captured for the British, which were the Green Witch, which had 10 guns, and the Georgina, which had 10 guns. This was before getting it arming her up and sending her off. So he had sent a bunch of captured boats to be sold off in Valparaiso. Okay. While he kept these three to patrol for more British whalers. He was patrolling between Peru and the Galapagos. So this battle was around July 12th or 13th. We're not exactly sure. Maybe even the 14th. Was nobody writing in their journal that day? They were. And they all were writing different dates. Okay, who was in charge of maintaining the bells and the calendar? Who do we have to keelhaul for just gross mismanagement of their time? The British. I need a name. Or well, a rank. It can't be Master Man. All right, well, we'll send Master Man after them. He'll get the job done. So... At around 1100, the Americans were sailing west from Peru. They were off the Banks Bay in the Galapagos when they sighted three sets of sails on the horizon. So Porter signals his ships to prepare for battle and the chase begins. So the majority of the British ships at this time in the South Pacific were whalers and they out Pretty much all had letters of mark, so they could act as private tiers should the opportunity arise. So these were all merchant ships that had some cannons thrown on, 
and they were still primarily engaging in merchant activities, but hey, if you see an opportunity to get a defenseless American merchant, go for it. Yeah, pretty much. Let's go kill some whales. Oh, there's an American. Let's kill them. <laughs> Is that an American whale? Double payday. So, the Americans went after these boats. So, Porter captures the Brig Charlton first. She was sailing in the center of the three ships and surrendered without a fight. So, Greenwich and Georgina went after the Sharing Apatam. The captain of this boat was William Stavers. She had a 41-man crew and nine-pound guns. Oh, I'm sorry. And 14 nine-pound guns. Not bad. So, while she's been underway for this trip, she has already captured one American whaler, and were on their way to capture whales. So, they took a look around and said, I don't think we'll be able to escape this. So they changed course to try to make a attack run on the Greenwich. So the Greenwich comes to a halt and waits for Georgina. All right. So once the Captain Stavers sees this happen, this is when he nopes out <laughs> and, and tries to flee. So Lieutenant Gamble closes the distance between the ships and demands that they surrender. But when the Americans come within pistol shot, Captain Stavers raises her colors and fires a broadside, which of course is immediately answered with small arms fire and broadsides of their own. Right. And once again, American fire proves much more accurate. And after taking heavy, heavy damage, the British strike their colors. So Lieutenant Gamble prepares to board Captain Staver's boat and they attempt to escape again. So Gamble orders his men to resume shooting, but this time at the sails of the British, which eventually destroys her sailing capability and brings her to a halt. Now Essex, when all this was happening, after capturing that one boat and seeing this other battle going on, mm -hmm. pursues the small eight-gun New Zealander. And fortunately, the captain of the New Zealander was intelligent and surrendered without incident. So there is no casualty estimates for this one, but 89 prisoners were captured. Now, here's the thing about these 89 new prisoners... The American ships were already filled with prisoners. Yeah, the, the inn was at capacity. They were already at capacity for prisoners. So they disarmed the Charleston, load her with 48 prisoners, and they parole them and say, <laughs> okay, you guys go off and surrender to the first American authority you encounter. So Captain Stavers, remember this guy? Yep. When... He was asked to provide his letter of mark. It turns out he hadn't actually not yet received one. <laughs> but it was probably waiting for him in Lima. So Porter tells Stavers that, well, guess what? Now you're going back to the U.S. and you're going to be tried as a pirate. And him and his crew were put in irons. 
Yeah. They were not paroled. You know, if you're going to engage in piracy, you might want to hold on to that. You might want to, like, hey, let's hold off on the looting and the pillaging and the commandeering until we have the letter saying that my government's cool with this. Because at least then, you know, I can say I was following orders. I don't have this. It, I'm just a common criminal. It's not legal without that piece of paper. Do we know how that trial ended up going? So it seems that he was sent back to the U.S. on board the Georgina. Okay. But it was intercepted and recaptured by a British frigate before reaching the U.S. So William emerges unscathed from this battle. <laughs> but he learned a valuable lesson. Always, always check your mailbox. Just don't leave port without a piece of paper saying that you can fight Americans. Yeah, and that's the big one. <laughs> so, we were just talking about the Essex. Yep. So let's talk about her capture. Let's. With the Battle of Valparaiso. So, Essex and Essex Jr. was commanded, again, still, by David Porter. And on March 28th, they were off the coast of Valparaiso, Chile. Alrighty. So, because the Essex had been so effective at capturing all these British whalers, the British Admiralty sends out two ships just to go after Porter and the Essex. Oh, wow. The Phoebe of 36 guns and the Cherub of 18 guns. The overall commander was James Hiller, and he was supposed to go and find the Essex and capture them or sink them. So they stumble across the Essex, as I said, in Valparaiso, just off of Chile. So the Phoebe came very, very close to the Essex, as, as if they wanted to start a battle and violate Chilean neutrality. So Captain Porter threatens to board Phoebe if it touches one rope of the Essex. So later in the day, the Essex tries to turn tail and run and was very, very close to succeeding until she loses her topmast. Well, what happened to the topmast? Was it shot down? Stress. Oh. Remember, this stuff's made out of wood. Oh, they don't make wood like they used to. They make wood the exact same way they used to. Well, clearly they don't, because I've never seen a topmast snap. I'm not even sure if we need them anymore. Depends what kind of boat you're on. Or the stress you're putting on it. And most masks nowadays are fiberglass anyway. See, they don't make them like they used to. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, a few hours later, Phoebe and Cherub brings Essex and Essex Jr. to bear. And then open fire on her. Essex only had carronades. So she was short range. Right. So Phoebe and Cherub stay out of range of those carronades and pound her with long guns. And they keep pounding her until she is a wreck and has to surrender. 
the Essex had 154 crew when this started. Yep. 58 of them died. Whoa. 45 of them were wounded and 31 were missing. Well, if you're missing on the open ocean, it's safe to assume KIA. Yes. Phoebe had four lost and seven wounded. And Cherub lost one with three wounded. Now, later, the Royal Navy fixes and recommissions the Essex. When they name her, do you know what they name her? Is it the HMS Essex? You got it in one. (laughs) (laughs) And then they kept her for 20 years. Oh. They must have done a pretty good job of those repairs then. So, Herman Melville... You know that name, right? That name certainly rings a bell. He criticized Porter's refusal to strike his colors when the situation was clear that all was lost. He said that he intended to seek a crown for himself with the glory of the shambles. He wanted to take this crown by permitting his crew to be butchered before his eyes. Because by continuing to fight as he did, the American frigate did not promote any interests of her country. Pretty much, there's a difference between, you know, fighting and then surrendering when it is reasonable that, you know, further resistance will just lead to the senseless death and there is no chance of achieving victory or your objective and just fighting to the last because, dang nabbit, death and glory. And I'm the commanding officer. I'm likely not going to be one of those that are dead. Pretty much. He's just looking for glory. But that's also by Melville. We don't know. Right, right. We don't have Porter's explanation. And he wasn't even born for decades until after this war was finished. Right. So, yeah, let's beat up on the dead. That's a good way to do it. Well, it's it's generally safe to, you know, lay into someone who's been dead for almost a century. What are they going to do? Come back and haunt you for saying some nasty things about you? I sure as hell would. All right, noted. I will wait until a little after two centuries then. Yes, that'll be fine. Okay. All right, and this will be the last thing we cover for 1812. The Nuku Hiva Campaign. This was a conflict between the U.S. and the Polynesian inhabitants of Nuku Hiva. This was in 1813, and it was because of Captain David Porter. This guy. Dadgummit. He decided he wanted to bring his fleet to the island for repairs before continuing to raid British shipping. Okay, so far, not bad. But when they got there, the Americans became involved in a tribal war and allied themselves with the Tili people against the Hapa and Taipei clans. Folks, you can't see it, but your XO is currently facepalming. Uh, yeah. What possessed Porter to decide to back this particular uh, tribe and get involved? Well... First, we need to go over that once he got there, he renamed it. He renamed it to Madison's Island after the president. (laughs) Oh, it'd be funny if it weren't so crappy. 
And then he makes preparations to establish the first American naval base in the Pacific. Okay. And a, and a small colony so he can house his sailors. I'm aware the United Nations or the human, the Bill of Human Rights, all that was, wasn't even a twinkle in somebody's eye yet. And I know colonialism was all the rage at this time. Especially with that good old-fashioned Manifest Destiny. But, uh, how did he know that somebody else hadn't staked a claim on this island? No idea. Okay, so he literally Probably just... didn't care. He, he literally just sailed here and thought, eh, you know, I'm not seeing a flag. I'm not seeing a plaque. I'm not seeing any white folks. That's good enough for me. And then he establishes a colony. Madisonville. <laughs> he also builds a fort. It has four guns. You know what he called this? Oh, uh, compensation. Fort Madison. <laughs> wow. Dang. So we have Fort Madison next to Madisonville on the island of Madison. Is the zip code M-A-D-I-S-O-N? Oh, yeah. I know how to spell, but zip codes in the United States have five digits. Now? Oh, oh of course, of course. Yeah. Okay. No, so, actually, no, I just realized something. He's going to shake it up. The, the zip code is James. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So he he finds an island. He founds a colony. He builds a fort to defend said colony and island. Okay. So far, he has managed to avoid getting involved in intertribal politics. He names the bay Massachusetts Bay. That won't get confusing. <laughs> so he also holds an official flag-raising ceremony. And a 17-gun salute was fired. And he buried, apparently, a message of some sort for future Europeans to find should they try to colonize the island after Porter leaves. You know, I don't think dibs works if you leave a message in the bottle on the beach. So, the message stated that the Isles were subjects of the United States, and that the latter had officially laid claim to the island, which Porter, he wanted this to become an important naval base. I mean, why wouldn't you? You find an island, you say, this is now mine, and this is going to be the most important thing in the Pacific, because I said so. That's perfectly reasonable logic. I am seeing absolutely no flaw with this genius plan. So, the repair work. They scrapped the copper bottoms of the hull of the Essex and smoked the Essex. You know why they did this? I, I really hope it's just to cure some meat. They did this so they could drive the over 1,000 rats that were in her hull. You know, I, I guess I wasn't far off, but I wasn't expecting a pest problem of that caliber. Did they not know what a cat is? Oh, actually they did. And there were cats on board Navy vessels in the past. There's still cats on Navy vessels sometimes. Mostly on the English and New Zealand and Australian side nowadays. But even during World War II, there were cats on Navy vessels. Right, well, like I'm not, I'm not being ironic or trying to make a joke. Like it's, there's a reason you should have cats on your vessels. Rodents are a massive problem, not just for health concerns, but your food stores could be uh, subject to 
being, uh, you know, dwindled by pest or contaminated, it's sensible to have a cat, cat or two on a ship. Like, I've had cats myself. They're great pest control. Plus, they just look so cute yes. when they're in their hammocks. Yes, they're they're evil, evil little crappers, but dang nabbit, they are so adorable and cute if they decide that they like you as their person. Hmm. So, would you like to know how the Americans describe the native population? Uh, one, one, one second. Um, let me pet my dog a little bit so I can have a little bit of joy in my life before I hear this very depressing... Yes, yes, I, I know, girl, I know. We're going to hear some very, very cringy crap right now. Please continue. Actually, it's not that bad. Oh! At least not at this point. Oh, good. They describe the native warriors as being tall and copper-colored, with tattoos over their entire bodies. They wore loincloths and some capes made of tree bark. They carried large clubs or spears. The women were clothed in similar fashion, but mostly naked and very friendly to the sailors. Um, they actually also found a half-naked Englishman named Wilson that was living on the island and had been marooned there for many years. So they used him as an interpreter for conversing with the native chiefs. Huh, that, that actually wasn't bad. I'm pleasantly surprised. So, the island was inhabited by a number of different tribes. They were separated in villages by mountain peaks, which were, which are thousands of feet high. The area of land, which was now called Massachusetts Bay, right off of the town of Madisonville, was controlled by a man named Chief Gatawuna of the Tili. And he was going to work with the Americans and allow them to build the base. But he wanted the Americans to become his allies and help fight his war against the Hapa. So while the majority of the Americans started building their settlement, their fort, their base, you know, Madisonville, Lieutenant John Downs and a Marine Lieutenant named John Gamble take a platoon of 40 Marines and proceeded inland. The Marines, they're the, the most labor-intensive part was when they dragged six pound cannons with them because these guys, of course, were aboriginals. This was gunpowder. They had a little bit of experience with it, but still, when you, that stuff goes off, it's shock and awe. Right. So, these 40 Marines went with several hundred Tilly warriors, and they left in the first week of November. So, they go through the jungle, and they find a fort occupied by three to 4,000 of the enemy tribes. So, they... Attack. They, they don't even try and parlay first? The T. Lee are the ones that are in charge here. This is why they were there, to defeat the other tribes. So, no. That, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, you're a new party on the island. You're just going to go fight these folks because the nearest tribe said, Hey, if you take them out, I'm going to really like you. Yep. That gummit. 
<laughs> Dad Gummit Porter, you could have been just a goofy little footnote in history. You could have been amusing. So, during the fight, one of the lieutenants was hurt by a rock when it hit him in the tummy. I'll give that valorous soldier a purple heart. So, another Marine was wounded by a spear to his neck. But, apparently he survives this. Don't know how, but he did. Like, assuming it's just a graze and didn't hit a major artery? Maybe. Or he just didn't need the blood that was in his body anymore. He had evolved to a higher level of being. (laughs) He has become mega American sailor. So Lieutenant Gamble gets singled out by a huge Hoppa warrior who charges at him with a wooden club. So he draws his sword and blocks the club from hitting him in the head. As another Marine sees this guy seeing these two struggle, levels his musket at the Hapa's head, and fires. A foot away. He missed, didn't he? No, he nearly decapitates the poor guy. Oh. So, the assault on this fort is successful. He reports that five men of his men were killed, and that the Tili massacred the wounded with clubs. So, no prisoners. Now, Lieutenant Downs, of course, is a racist bastard. So he says that he is very surprised that his allies did not eat the dead. Oh my... Ah, there's the cringy crap. But he said that instead they did use their bones to make necklaces and fan handles. So, over the next few days, the chiefs of the Hapa arrive at the coast to sue for peace. One of the stipulations of the peace was that the Hapa had to fight alongside the Tili and the Americans against the Taipai, which was another tribe on the island. So, because of this, one of the most significant amphibious landings in American history operations in the Pacific of the 1800s happened. It, of course, was unopposed. It, yes, but I, I'm, I wasn't expecting them to have a, a cutting-edge navy to try and repel American invaders. But Captain Porter's fleet, which ended up having around 5,000 friendly warriors with 200 war canoes, attacks the Taipei-held coastline. After that... 36 officers and men with a cannon, which was personally commanded by Porter, led a expedition to a fortress of seven-foot-high walls. So a battle begins when the Taipais ambushed the column in the jungle near the fort. Porter writes, quote, We entered the bushes, and at every instant, assailed by spears and stones, which came from different parties in the ambulcade. We could hear the snappings of the slings, the whistling of the stones, and the spears came quivering by us. But we could not perceive from whom they came. Unquote. So this was his Vietnam? No. This was his slaughter. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. What, what, let me rephrase that. He's trying to make it out as he's this intrepid war hero... Taming the wild jungle. Yes. 
Yeah, when really he's just a pompous ass who, like, why don't you go to this island? Yeah, what? Be polite, be cordial. You know, get the repairs done you need. Be on your merry way. And get rid of the rats. Come on, a, a thousand rats? What the heck? So, eventually the column makes it to the fort after a number of light skirmishing, which got heavier and heavier the further they went. So, once they reach the fort, the pitched battle begins. And this would last for hours. The Tilis and the Hapas provides the brunt of the attack, which of course they would because they have the most men on the field. And Porter considers them very expendable. Oh, very, very expendable. Now, the Americans, they pick off the enemy warriors with musket fire. And the cannon was used on the fortifications themselves. The Once they got there, a Marine sergeant notified Lieutenant Gamble and Captain Porter of the hopelessness of their situation, apparently. The Marines that were in his squad were down to three or four cartridges of ammunition. So Lieutenant Gamble and four men were given permission to go back to the beach for resupply. But when they got back, the situation had deteriorated. Thousands of the Taipais occupied the heavily defended position, and they were able to repel the native attackers. Near the end of this battle, the Tailees and the Hepas flee leaving the 36 Americans that were there to fend for themselves. So Captain Porter notified Lieutenant Gamble to order his Marines to take cover and nope out of there back to the beach. So Gamble positions his men at the edge of a bush for a volley one last time to try to ensure that the enemy did not pursue them in any huge numbers. So the Americans lose one man and two were wounded. And Lieutenant Downs was actually one of the wounded. He had a broken leg. Well, he deserves a lot worse. So, of course, now that Porter has finally been defeated, oh, that word goes through the island like like hellfire. And the Tili and the Hapa warriors began to turn on the Americans. Don't blame them. So Porter writes, quote, I had now no alternative but to prove our superiority by successful attack upon the teepees. So Porter organizes and leads most of his men on a mission into enemy territory. This time going over land to the teepee valley. And with... Almost no assistance from the Tilly. So the valley is a dense nine miles by three miles and was the heartland of where the Tai Pi, where the Tai Pai was. Their village was located there. And, you know, they had a nice little thing going with harvesting coconut and breadfruit. Yeah. So the. So Porter makes a detour to actually avoid a heavily defended fort near the coast because he wanted to make a surprise attack to use the terrain and his weapons to add advantage. So they marched at night 
to the top of a ridge that overlooked the valley. Now, Porter had thought to immediately attack, but all those men were like, dude, I'm tired. Can I just go get some sleep? We're exhausted. That was a long climb. Yeah, trekking through miles and miles of uneven, you know, unmapped for them, thick terrain. Yeah, that's a little exhausting. And you want them to fight after doing so. When they probably don't want to be fighting this, they just want to go back on their boat. Like, hey, we had fun. We made a fort. You know, we even named it after the president. I'm sure he'll like that. Let's go. So Porter, to his credit, said, okay, we'll wait till the morning. He wasn't one of those guys like, no, just go. Which what the British did a lot. So the next day was rainy and windy, according to Porter. Apparently, the moisture had temporarily ruined the gunpowder. So these guys were like, you know what? No gunpowder, no attack. We're just going to sit here, rest, and wait for this powder to dry. A sensible thought. So, finally, after the powder was dry, hopefully these guys were well-rested by now, they launched an attack. And then the Americans and the Tealies find themselves in another ambush, which they had to fight off. So... They fight through this ambush, and Captain Porter sends a message to the Tai Pai leaders. He says to cease hostilities at once, or we're going to burn your village. So Porter waits to see a reply. He waits and waits and waits and says, you know what? These guys are ignoring our message. Advance. So they advance. And eventually they win because the enemy disengages when night falls. And during all of this huge, long, bloody day, no American casualties. So apparently Porter claims that he took no pleasure in conquering a, quote, happy and heroic people. As he describes the aftermath of the battle as, quote, a scene of desolation and horror. But he also wrote that he left behind, quote, a line of smoking ruins when he returns to Madisonville. So I'm calling BS on that. I, I was going to say, like, this this entire venture just seems like Porter wanting to inflate his own ego and get his jollies off by feeling like he's the biggest, baddest guy around. Well, you know, he was j- dancing around there, smiling with a big ass heart on. I, I have no rebuttal for that. I completely agree. I, I'm like, what, what, what do you want me to say? Oh, nah, nah. He seemed like a swill. Oh, no, screw that guy. I'd be saying much more choice words if we try, weren't uh, a family. Yeah, I know. I know, girl. I know. He's such a jerk. He was such a jerk, wasn't he? So he gets back to Madisonville, and the Taipei emissaries were actually not very far behind them. They brought the Americans number of hogs as peace offerings. Now, a British magazine later said that Porter was guilty of, quote, wantonly murdering unoffending savages, to which the captain replied, many, many censure my conduct as wanton and unjust, but let such reflect on our particular situation. 
a handful of men residing among numerous warlike tribes, liable every moment to be attacked by them and all cut off. Our only hopes on safety was in convincing them of our great superiority over them, and for what we have already seen, we must either attack them or be attacked. Wars are not always just, and are rarely free from excess. My conscience acquits me of any injustice, and no excesses were committed by what the teepees had in their power to stop by ceasing hostilities. Objection, Your Honor. I would like to refer to Exhibit A, the uh, defendant's own journal, upon meeting the initial tribe he made contact with. I believe the words friendly, honorable, tall, copper-skinned were mentioned. Sounds like a pretty swell group of people. Now, they wanted you to engage in war with some rivals to build your fort. Crazy thought, don't build the fort, just get your repairs done and leave with happy relations. I object your objections. We must conquer lands so we can expand. You have a whole continent back home. Not enough. I, I'll agree to disagree on that one. Well, now, yes, but back then, no, they wanted it all. So that is the final action of 1812, not even against the British. So, on December 9th, the Exus was finally repaired and ready to get underway. And the sailors, they were not happy about leaving their new girlfriends behind. Well, no, of course not. And Porter actually had to suppress a mutiny by declaring that, quote, would at once put a match to the magazine and blow them all to eternity. How the hell did someone this unstable and this quick to jump the gun become an officer? Haven't you noticed the, the loose morals that people have during this time? I Okay, yes. But when your response to a mutiny is, okay, but what if I blow us all up? Instead of, I don't know, inspiring leadership through example? You're looking for logic where there is none? Uh, I mean, I guess if the British had Provost, we had to have Porter. It only evens out. Exactly. So, a former Royal Navy sailor, his name was Robert White, was brought to Porter because he's being accused of mutinous talk aboard the XS Junior. So, of course, White denies the accusation, which infuriates Porter. Porter draws his sword. His face goes beat red and yells at him, quote, run, you scoundrel, run for your life. So White runs. He jumps overboard and swims to a canoe that's nearby. So 250 men remain loyal and they get underway December 9th of 1813 to continue with their raids. Most of the fleet left, though the Sir Andrew Hammond and the Seringapatam and the Greenwich stays at Nukuhiva with Lieutenant John Gramble, two midshipmen, 19 sailors, and six prisoners. And some of these prisoners, of course, were British nationals. Now, Everything was quiet until around May 7th, when the British sailors mutinied. They first release six prisoners and attack the fort, and then they take over the Saragatum and get away. 
Gamble was looted in the foot. Yeah, they looted his foot. They were like, I'm taking your foot. (laughs) Gamble was wounded in his foot and was left adrift in a small boat. He was with four others, thankfully, so he wasn't alone. And eventually they make it back to this Sir Andrew Hammond. Now, remember Wilson, the British interpreter? I was wondering what happened to him. They made him into a volleyball and... His movie career spanned decades. Well, now... Well, actually, he was arousing trouble with the tea leaf. He was telling them that Porter was not going to come back. So, a few days later, on May 9th, six of the American sailors were attacked and killed on the beach by the Teeley. So, Gamble was alone on his ship, recovering from his wounded foot, when two war canoes approached for an attack. The cannon of the ship was preloaded. So, Gamble limped from gun to gun, firing them as fast as he could, which caused the enemy to fall back. So, a wounded man, by himself, repelled a boarding party. I still think he's a bastard, but that is kind of badass. This is Gamble, not Porter. I I thought we don't like Gamble, considering some of the comments he made. I think that was all Porter. All right. Gamble's a Marine. Could have sworn Gamble made some choice comments. Well, I mean... Of course he did. He's a racist bastard just like everybody else in this time period. Regardless, bastard or not, that that is kind of badass that you're wounded on a ship alone and you manage to repel a boarding party. So the next day he goes, yeah, we're getting out of here. Evacuate Madisonville. I mean, there's only eight men left anyway because the rest of them were either wounded or sick. So... That evacuation ends the existence of America's first naval base and colony in the Pacific Ocean. And Wilson was correct. Porter never came back because he was captured by the British at the Battle of Valparaiso. So what was the United States government's reaction to all of this? Considering he wanted to play colonizer when he was an officer during a war with, you know, the largest empire on the planet at the time. You mean the U.S.'s reaction to Porter? Yeah, yeah. You go, dude. Seriously? He's not going to get punished for establishing more territory for the U.S. during Nothing war. Nothing was established. Nothing was held. His well, men played with Lincoln logs. He wasn't there when it happened. It's not his fault. Well, I see, because they didn't have his stellar leadership to direct them. That was the only reason that Madisonville was lost. Yeah, with Fort Madison and Massachusetts Bay on the island of Madisonville, or the island of Madisons. So did Wilson uh, ever get off, or is that the last we hear of him? I I think he was thrown from a cliff, and then immediately the guy who did that was so sorry because his only friend was gone. (laughs) All right, so headcanon is that he became a very successful movie star. Absolutely as he deserved. So that's it for 1812. How how do you feel about the the War of 1812? Oh my... God, that was so pointless. Like, nothing changed aside from people having a little more respect for the United States. And holy crap, Porter, 
provide like there were so many idiots yeah there were on all sides there were so many yeah yeah guys that you don't want in command so honestly aside from being a morale booster for the american people and the american armed forces this does not seem like it was uh you know the highlight in american military history well fortunately we get to leave 1812 here and maybe we'll be lucky enough to see Master Man again. One can only hope. So, tell me something. Do you know why the Second Italian Navy have glass bottom boats? Um, to view the beautiful Mediterranean Sea that they're sailing over? No, it's to view the First Italian Navy. <laughs> and we'll get into that in world, during World War II. All right, so that is going to be it for today. We are finally done with the War of 1812. So next time, we are going to be on the Second Barbary War. Yep, North Africa too, Electric Boogaloo. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. We hope you enjoyed. If you want to reach out to us, you can at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at u.s history pod xo anything you want to uh say before we leave well i want to wish everyone fair winds and following seas now captain the crew have been asking me if we can uh take some shore leave at massachusetts bay they haven't specified which though figure out which fantastic u.s naval history podcast Departing.